Looking together at verses 34 to 46 of Deuteronomy chapter 1. And I ask that you would prepare yourself accordingly because the subject matter for this morning is quite heavy. Deuteronomy chapter 1, beginning in verse 34, and we will look at it all the way to verse 36. And if you are able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient word this morning, starting in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 34. And the Lord heard your words and was angered, and he swore, not one of these men of this evil generation shall see the good land that I swore to give to your fathers, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. He shall see it, and to him and to his children I will give the land on which he has trodden, because he has wholly followed the Lord. Even with me, the Lord was angry on your account and said, You also shall not go in there. Joshua, the son of Nun, who stands before you, he shall enter. Encourage him, for he shall cause Israel to inherit it. And as for your little ones, who you said would become a prey, and your children, who today have no knowledge of good or evil, they shall go in there, and to them I will give it, and they shall possess it. But as for you, turn and journey into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea. Then you answered me, we have sinned against the Lord. We ourselves will go up and fight just as the Lord our God has commanded us. And every one of you fastened on his weapons of war and thought it easy to go up into the hill country. And the Lord said to me, say to them, do not go up or fight, for I am not in your midst, lest you be defeated before your enemies. So I spoke to you, and you would not listen, but you rebelled against the command of the Lord and presumptuously went up into the hill country. Then the Amorites who lived in that hill country came out against you and chased you as bees do and beat you down in Seir as far as Hormah. And you returned and wept before the Lord. But the Lord did not listen to your voice or give ear to you. So you remained at Kadesh many days, the days that you remained there. This is the word of the Lord this morning. Thanks be to God, you may be seated. Verse 35. Not one of these men of this evil generation shall see the good land that I swore to give to your fathers. For many, for many today and for many over the last few centuries, one of the more uncomfortable attributes of our Lord, the one true and living God, is this, his absolutely perfect holiness. The Lord's matchless holiness is such that rebellion against his incomparably wonderful word, that disobedience to his majestic and faultless will must be met with his righteous anger and wrath. 
This is the necessary response of a perfectly holy and just God to every single violation of his commands. To violate one, the New Testament tells us, is to be guilty of violating the entire law of God, as James 2 tells us. Whoever keeps the whole law and yet fails in one point becomes guilty of all of it. And this is why Jesus Christ... The second person of the triune God took on flesh and made his dwelling among us. Because the Lord in his perfect holiness cannot simply declare sinners innocent or righteous or forgiven without his holy anger at sin and wickedness being appeased. And how is it appeased? The anger and wrath and justice and holiness of God is eternally appeased in one of two ways. Either by it being poured out, his eternal righteous wrath being poured out upon the rebel who dies apart from grace through faith in Jesus Christ for eternity future, or it is appeased by his pouring out of that just righteous rage and indignation on a substitute who bears that wrath in your place on your behalf. And because the Lord, while he is just and holy, is also at the very same time perfectly loving and gloriously merciful and eminently gracious, because God is all of these things, Jesus Christ came to be that substitute for us. He came to bear in himself the just fury of God against wickedness. Apart from Christ, that, that wrath will fall upon us. For all who refuse Christ, that justice will fall upon them for eternity. Jesus walked this earth in order to die in our place in order to be the stand-in for all who believe, in order to be the one who absorbs and who bears the perfect wrath of the Father in your place. It was necessary that Christ humble himself by taking on the form of a servant and dying on that cross because, and this is the scriptural witness, because if God were to simply pass over the sins of wicked sinners... If God were to simply say, hey, everybody, all is good, all is good, you're forgiven, you're acquitted, all those sins that you've committed, here's the rug, here's my broom, I've swept them under, they're all gone. If the Lord were to say such a thing to liars and thieves and murderers and sexual offenders and cheats and adulterers and slanderers, if their crimes and sins were simply swept under the rug, justice is not served. And the Lord would be unjust. Our Lord would be anything other than good. And you and I, we innately understand this, don't we? You and I, we will scream for justice when a wrong is committed against us. We will, if necessary, take matters into our own hands, either by bringing the person who has committed the injustice to court in hopes that the legal system will dispense the justice we feel we are owed. 
Or we will take matters into our own hands and do what we think is the appropriate measure of justice against the person we feel has committed a sin against us. We might slander them. We might sabotage them. Whatever it is, we try to take matters into our own hands. But for us in the West, generally and by global standards, we're pretty comfortable and we're pretty rich. And so the justice of God isn't much of a comfort to us. But put yourself for a second in the place of a hostile believer somewhere else in the world where family members are being executed by unjust governments and guerrilla units, like units of rebels. The picture that has always stuck with me is from a, about a decade ago when ISIS was making their way through the Middle East. And there was a picture that I saw in the news one time of a father holding his daughter who had just been beheaded by these wicked men. And the face he was making as he shouted out in grief. The picture of a father crying out in anguish and in a pain unlike anything I could fathom. To such, the justice of God as an attribute is precious. That the Lord will repay those men for what they did. It provides to them an avenue of hope. Different situations will stress different attributes of God and rest in those attributes, thanking God for them. And while we fixate on mercy, which rightfully so, the justice of God is also wonderful and blessed to so many saints all over the world. And so Scripture tells us to leave such vengeance in the hands of the Lord. Because as we've already noted, the wrath of God is perfect. In e, he is the only one whose vengeance against wickedness and sin and rebels can be considered truly righteous. And the Lord has made it clear in the Proverbs, in Proverbs 17, 15. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. So you see right there in that text, if the Lord were to simply forgive and justify the wicked from those who behead the daughters of men, to those who slander their neighbor and everything in between. If the Lord were simply to say, it's all okay, he would be an abomination. And so the sacrifice of Jesus Christ displays to all of us, as Romans 3 tells us, that God is both just and justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. The sacrifice of Jesus declares God to be perfectly merciful and perfectly gracious and perfectly loving and at the same time perfectly holy and perfectly just in that he didn't just dismiss sin as though it were nothing but instead punished it in his son 
Jesus Christ showing the world just how heinous, just how vulgar, just how revolting, and just how evil sin really is. The sacrifice of Christ displays God as the merciful and gracious justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus because of what Jesus has accomplished for everyone who puts their faith and trust in him. Romans 3, 24 and 25 tells us that we are justified or declared innocent and righteous in his sight by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ whom God put forward to be received by faith. And this is great news because throughout Scripture we have revealed to us glimpses of the calamity that is God's wrath poured out on the wicked. And to know, as we look at our text today, to know that this is only the tip of the iceberg It's only a fraction of what awaits the wicked who rebel against Jesus Christ unto death ought to strike terror in the hearts of those who at this moment don't truly believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the only way for your sin to be forgiven is by Christ bearing the wrath of God in your place for you. And the only way by which to lay hold of that sacrifice is by grace through faith in the name of Jesus. I want you to just hear a small selection of scriptures that speak or warn us about the wrath of God. 1 Samuel 2, verse 10, Hannah prayed this, The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. And again, hear the psalmist in Psalm 75, verses 8 to 10. In the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed. And he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the world will drain it down to the dregs. But I will declare it forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. All the horns of the wicked I will cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. Note the contrast there. And a couple of times in the Proverbs, Proverbs 3, the Lord's curse is on the house of Of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. Towards scorners, he is scornful, but to the humble, he gives favor. And the righteous one observes the house of the wicked, and he throws the wicked down to ruin. One more from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 13, verses 9 to 11. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil." 
and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. If you want to see this worked out, read Revelation chapters 6 to 18. And as you hear these warnings, you and I who are saved by grace through faith ought to know that ultimately this is the goodness of God in action. That unrepentant sinners who rebel against Him and maintain that rebellion unto death will be met with the fierce and cruel judgment of God, according to Isaiah. So be warned, sinners, who have not turned from sin to the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. And as we come to our text, the judgment of God on this wilderness generation is referenced in both the Old and the New Testaments alike as one of the clearest instances of what becomes of those who rebel against the Lord. And it is held out to us twice in the Old Testament and twice in the New, at least, as a warning. Do not be like them. Do not be disobedient and faithless like them and so forfeit the blessings that God offers to you. Repent and believe. This is what Moses is describing in verses 34 and 35 of chapter 1. The Lord heard your words and was angered and he swore, not one of these men of this evil generation shall see the good land that I swore to give to your fathers. So here we see first that the Lord heard the defiant, stiff-necked, disobedient words of the faithless Israelites as they complained against God and murmured and griped and went from tent to tent to tent complaining about their circumstance. Saying, it would be better for us to return to Egypt than to go up and try to take possession of Canaan in obedience to God. And this mutiny... This constitutes a mutiny against the Lord. This insubordination, this lack of trust, it roused the Lord to a furious anger. To the point that he said to Moses in Numbers 14, which is the description of the events at hand, Numbers 14, verses 11 and 12, he said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? I will strike them down with the pestilence and disinherit them. And I will make of you, Moses, a nation greater and mightier than they. See, the Lord could still have fulfilled his promises to Abraham by starting over with Moses. Because Moses is a descendant of Abraham. But Moses, the humble man of God, did what any good leader should and must do. He interceded on behalf of his rebellious, stiff-necked, faithless people. And in Numbers verses 14, chapter 14, verses 7 to 9, he looked, he prayed back, he re responded to the Lord with these words. Please let the power of the Lord be as great as you have promised saying, the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. 
But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. Because of this intercession by the godly man Moses, the Lord responded and outlined to him what would become of five separate groups in the nation at that time. The general population of Israel over 20 years old, number one, Caleb, number two, Moses, number three, Joshua, number four, and the children of Israel, like the children, number five. The Lord had something to say to and about each of these five groups, so let's take a look at all of them in order. Beginning with all the peoples, 20 and up, the Lord said this in Numbers 14, verses 20 to 23. I have pardoned according to your word, but truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my sights that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness... And have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. And none of those who despised me shall see it. This is the first group. And these are a people spoken of and remembered throughout scripture as, and held out to us as a warning for all of mankind. What was the judgment? What was the penalty for their rebellion? Numbers 14, 29 to 34 spells it out four times in just a matter of five verses. Four times the, the, the Lord repeats a similar phrase. Your dead bodies shall fall in the wilderness. Numbers 14, 29. And... Your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness 40 years and shall suffer for your faithlessness until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. Numbers 14.33. And again, in this wilderness they shall come to a full end and there they shall die. Numbers 14.35. And along with that... Those ten faithless spies, you remember them, right? Twelve were sent, twelve came back. Caleb and Joshua said, let's go, the land is great, we can do it, we've got God on our side, we can run up and take it. While the other ten were like, nope, the people there are too big, the walls are too high, we can't do it, let's get a new leader and let's go back to Egypt. Well, those ten who spread the bad report among the people of Israel, those ten who inspired the grumbling and the griping of the people from tent to tent, those ten, according to Numbers 14, 37, died by a plague before the Lord. Immediate judgment. The penalty for rebellion, the just wrath of God upon the, faithless dis the nation's faithless disobedience was the death of an entire generation in the wilderness. And the scriptures reference and repeat this event again to warn future generations like us to love the Lord with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind and all of our strength. First, the psalmist singing praises to God in Psalm 95. Psalm 95 verses 7 to 11. Read this. The singers exhort us. 
Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years, listen to this, for 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath that they shall not enter my rest. Speaking about this generation. And you see here, the attributes of God are so exceedingly perfect that we've got instances of God swearing an oath in his love to Abraham. And here, in verse 11, God swears oaths in his wrath also. Both of these attributes upon which or by which God swears oaths are glorious. And again, in Psalm 106, verses 24 to 26, we read this. They despised the pleasant land. Having no faith in his promise, they murmured in their tents and did not obey the voice of the Lord. Therefore, he raised his hand and swore to them that he would make them fall in the wilderness. Two Old Testament references, two new According to the Apostle Paul, he warns the Corinthian believers to keep themselves from idols, to keep themselves from being disobedient and faithless to the Lord in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 to 6, when he said, to the, said this to them, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness now these, took, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. That word there for overthrown that Paul uses here, it means struck down and their dead bodies scattered and spread out in the wilderness. And one more, the writer of the letter to the Hebrews reminds his readers of the Lord's overthrowing of this wilderness generation and warns them, and by extension also warns us, not to be like that generation, saying in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 to 18, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil and unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. 
The writer of the Hebrews here is reminding us God will not bring unbelievers into his good and fruitful land. He will not save the unrepentant. The faithless shall be unable to enter the heavenly places because of their unbelief, unless they turn to Jesus Christ in faith. And why? The question I ask myself is why? Why would this particular display of God's wrath be used so often throughout the Old and the New Testament as a warning to all of us? And I would think that one of the reasons is its sheer scale. If you'd really want to understand how seriously God takes sin, faithlessness, unbelief, and rebellion, consider the numbers impacted by his judgment upon the wilderness generation. So when Moses took a census of the fighting men in Israel, that number came to around 600,000 people. 600,000 fighting men. Scholars estimate that this 600,000 would be about 70% of the men in the nation if you consider the older men and the children who aren't yet able to go to war. So we're close to a million. Then add to that the number of comparable women. And then add to that the people who had left Egypt to travel with Israel into the wilderness as they saw the workings of God. So the estimates range anywhere from 2 to 2.5 million men and women in the nation. And about 1.5 million of which fit the description of faithless over 20. 1.5 million faithless over 20. Meaning that if you average it out over the next 40 years in the wilderness... 37,500 people died per year, which averages out to about 100 people per day in the nation for 40 years. Everywhere that Israel went as they traversed the wilderness for the next 40 years, they left behind hundreds, if not thousands, of dead bodies. You see how seriously we should be taking the holiness of God do you see what the Lord does with those who defy his word? And again, look to the even greater and more devastating display, if you want, in Revelation 6 to 18, as large swaths of the earth's population, of the rebels who are left on the earth, are destroyed as trumpets are blown, as seals are opened, and as bowls are poured out on those who rejected God in this life. Do we see, as we look at Scripture's witness, that while the world might hate this subject, while some of you might hate this subject, while we might want to scrub this particular attribute of God from our minds, because it, it, it's not nice and fluffy and it's not what we really want to hear, the Word of God calls upon us, it commands us, it beckons us to hear and to listen to sit and consider the gravity of God's holy judgment against the faithless sinner who refuses to trust in his son, Jesus Christ. In the nation of Israel, a host of blessings were offered to them, all of which they forfeited because of their unbelief. 
This is what became of the over 20 generation in the wilderness. For 40 years, their dead bodies fell and littered that wilderness as the wrath of God poured out against them for their hostility and faithlessness to God's commands. So the Lord in His Word references the reality, references the gravity and the scale of His wrath as a warning to us. And while we might try to avoid thinking and speaking about this particular attribute of God, He will not let us. His wrath is real. And it will fall upon those who die apart from Christ. And again, while the subject might bring us some degree of embarrassment or discomfort, the Lord here shows us He is not embarrassed by His holiness. Nor does He experience any discomfort with the exercise of His perfect, holy, and just wrath upon rebellious sinners who refuse His offer of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to their death. For people today, there is nothing more terrible for a sinner than to die apart from Jesus Christ. 10,000 worlds could collide. The world could go to war tomorrow and every single nuclear missile on the planet could be fired. We could all come down with some terminal deadly disease. Whatever you think the most dreadful and fearful thing that could ever happen on earth is, the wrath of God eternally poured out on one sinner, just one, outstrips all of them by an unimaginably large margin. And it is for this reason that the biblical authors never shy away from this subject, never shy away from the warnings It's the same reason why you and I must contemplate this wonderful attribute of God. It's why we must never avoid it. In fact, we must recognize the urgency with which we must announce this truth to the people of this world. Along with the gracious provision of Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life who is the only name given under heaven among men by which we can be saved from that wrath and adopted into the family of God. And so to all who are sitting here this morning who might be listening to this message, the Lord is still as holy today as He was in the days when Israel was in the wilderness. Nothing about God has changed. His wrath is still more devastating than we can begin to imagine. So I pray that and plead that you will hear the exhortation of Hebrews 3.19 and see to it that you are not unable to enter the everlasting joy of the Lord because you don't believe. But instead, that you would confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and be saved. That's the first group. The second group is Caleb, or the man, Caleb. Deuteronomy 1, verse 36, we read this. Except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, he shall see it, and to him and to his children I will give the land on which he has trodden, because he has wholly followed the Lord. Or as it's stated in Numbers 14, 24, but my servant Caleb, 
because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land into which he went, and his descendants shall possess it. You see the difference here. There's a contrast, a marked contrast between a nation of the faithless and this one faithful man. Caleb is the man of faith. He is the man who exhorted the people to go up and take the land because the giants or the Anakim that were dwelling in the land are and were no match for the Lord. He said, we will indeed inherit the land. Let's go. And now, as Deuteronomy is written, and the nation is on the borders of the land, ready to go in with this new generation, even at 80 plus years old, Caleb's 80 plus years old at this moment, he alone, with the Lord as his captain, went into the land and defeated the giants in the land. Judges 1 tells us that Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses had said, and he, Caleb, drove out from it the three sons of Anak, meaning the giants. He did this as an old man, bursting with faith in the Lord. You see, this isn't young 20-year-old Caleb here. He wasn't some young man with energy and vigor who later became jaded because of his circumstances. No, for the entirety of the time when he was in the wilderness, he was waiting and waiting and waiting with faith and hope and confidence for that moment when all of a sudden the Lord would say, now's the time, go on up and take the land. He said it to Joshua in Joshua 14, 10 to 12. Behold, he said, the Lord has kept me alive just as he said these 45 years since the time the Lord spoke this word to Moses while Israel walked in the wilderness. And now behold, I am this day 85 years old and I am still as strong today as I was in the day Moses sent me. My strength now is as my strength was then for war and for going and for coming. So now give me this hill country which the Lord spoke to me on that day. For you heard on that day how the Anakim were there with great and fortified cities. It may be the Lord will be with me and I shall drive them out as the Lord had said. At 85, he still knows that at his age, he can drive them out because the Lord is fighting the battles for him. Caleb never stopped trusting and believing in the word and the power of God. He knew I'm 85. The only reason I'm still alive is because God has not yet fulfilled his promise to me that I will enter into the land and defeat those giants. Again, note the contrast. Blessings forfeited by a faithless generation and blessings inherited by a faithful Caleb. And in the same way that we are warned by bodies in the wilderness, falling in the desert, so too are we encouraged in this text by the faithful reception of the promises of God by Caleb. And the two are held out to you. The same choice lies before us, to join in with the nation and die, or to stand apart from it, being of a different spirit, wholly following the Lord and receiving the promise of eternal life by faith. Learn from Caleb's faith and trust here. He firmly and repeatedly called on those around him to believe the Lord's word. And even though the nation, even though everyone around him, save three other men, Moses, Joshua, and Aaron, all of everyone else disobeyed 
and began ratcheting up the pressure on Caleb to follow suit, to fall in line, even going so far as to begin picking up stones to kill him, Caleb would not join in with their faithless disobedience. He refused without apology and without embarrassment to be like that nation. He would not, as Psalm 1 says, walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the seat stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight was in the law of the Lord. Caleb was one second away from being murdered by the crowd. And not even that shook his devotion to the Lord. He didn't give in to the pressures placed on him by faithless rebels. He didn't try to fit in with the majority, but he remained convictional in his obedience, never wavering, hesitating, equivocating, vacillating, or fearing anyone but the Lord. And the Lord rewarded Caleb greatly for his faith. The nation 20 and up, Caleb, and now third, the third person or group referenced is Moses. In verse 37 we read, Even with me the Lord was angry on your account and said, You also shall not go in there. Now Moses is going to speak to this two more times in the next few chapters, so we will go into greater detail about Moses being barred from the entry into the promised land in one of those future texts. Nation under 20, Caleb, Moses, and the fourth is Joshua. Look at verse 38. Joshua, the son of Nun, who stands before you, he shall enter, encourage him, for he shall cause Israel to inherit it. Joshua, like Caleb, was a faithful man who will, after the generation of the faithless dies in the wilderness, he will lead the charge. Under his leadership, Israel will go up and take possession of the land. Joshua had been Moses' assistant. That's what it means to stand before Moses. And in fact, Joshua had accompanied Moses up to Mount Sinai, in the days when Moses had received the law. While Joshua didn't enter the cloud like Moses did, he did spend time waiting on the mountain for Moses. And it's this man, Joshua, that the Lord chose to lead the people into Canaan. And this is one of the reasons why our Lord is named Jesus. Jesus is the Greek form of Joshua. The picture or point being, long ago, Joshua led the people of God into the promised land that is Canaan, and now the greater deliverer has come, Jesus, the new Joshua, the better Joshua, to conduct all of God's people, Jew or Gentile, into the greater promised land, if only they would believe in his name. So the nation of Israel, 20 years old and up, Caleb, Moses, Joshua, and now fifthly, the children in Israel. They are spoken of in verse 39. As for your little ones, who you said would become a prey, and your children, who today have no knowledge of good or evil, they shall go in there, and to them I will give it, and they shall possess it. So notice the two words, little ones and children. Little ones refers to infants who can't yet walk or march. Children uh, speaks to those who are younger, but who can kind of toddle around, but they still don't know good from evil. The children that Israel would use as a justification for not obeying the Lord's command to go up into the land, the very ones the Lord said that you as a nation said would become a prey, that word prey means to be plundered and taken by the violence of war, it will actually be these who I take into the promised land. They will inherit 
the land. So after announcing his decrees to these five groups, the Lord then in verse 40 makes a command to his people. As for you, turn and journey into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea. Now that is, those are some of the most grievous words in this entire book. What a penalty. Turn and walk away from the land of promise. Set Canaan in your rear view mirror and go into the wilderness in the direction of Egypt. And here lies one of the great warnings for us. You see, you and I might think we know what's best for us, that we're so smart, like I can choose what's good for me, I know. Israel did the same thing. They thought that ignoring and rebelling against the command of God, they thought getting rid of their godly leadership and appointing someone to lead them back to Egypt, they thought giving into their own heart's passions and desires, they thought that fear being a better governor than the Lord, they thought all of these things were their best course of action. And now, as their punishment The Lord gives them what they wanted. Turn and walk into the wilderness, in the direction of the Red Sea, in the direction of Egypt. This is what you said you wanted, Israel. So here, take it. I give it to you. So the wrath of the Lord can be spoken of in a a variety of ways. One, at, at times, it is an active wrath in the sense that he sends plagues or snakes or strikes against the people, against the land, against the king. And other times, it's what we call the passive wrath, when the Lord gives people up to the wicked desires that they wanted. And he gives them up to, the, to suffer the consequences of those sinful desires. So listen, let us never think that we know what's better for our own person than the Lord does. We who love Christ must always be praying and asking the Lord to eradicate our sinful passions and praying that the Lord would not give us up and over to the things that we think we want. We'd be be praying that God would always be intervening, always be convicting, always be disciplining, always be giving us thorns in the flesh if need be, always be giving us whatever it is that we need to grow in holiness and Christ-likeness because one of the worst things that could ever happen to a person is that God gives us up to our own passions and desires. This is what Romans 1 speaks to. The Apostle Paul speaks about this in Romans 1. As he wrote in 118 of Romans, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now, how does that take place? What does it mean that his wrath is being uh, revealed from heaven against ungodliness and unrighteousness upon those who rebel and reject God? Romans 1 Three times in Romans 1, it describes sinners being in God's wrath, given up to what they want. First, in 24 and 25 of Romans chapter 1, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. And again, in verse 26, God gave them up to a dishonorable passions, 
For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. When you read that, ask yourself the question, how can you tell when a society and a culture has been given up to dishonorable passions by the Lord? Sexual misconduct, sexual deviance runs rampant and is considered normal and even to be celebrated by that culture, even as that sexual deviance destroys the bodies and the souls of the people who have been given over to it. Even as it destroys the fabric of the society in which they live, it reflects a people dedicated to throwing off all restraints, to eliminating all boundaries, to promoting chaos. It is a modern-day attempt to storm the heavens at Babel. But the Lord sits in the heavens and laughs. He isn't in any way threatened by feeble humanity's efforts, but instead gives them over. And what a tragic result it is for the Lord to give sinners over to the unrestrained practice of those sins. And thirdly, in verse 28, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, and malice. So in all three of these instances, Paul tells us what the Lord's wrath upon the persistently unrighteous actually is. Here, have what you want. And where does that lead? For Israel, it led to their dead bodies being littered throughout the wilderness. As they all died outside the promised land, they all died outside the land of blessing. And again, for the sinner, unless you turn and believe in the Lord Jesus, you too will also suffer eternal death outside the promised land. But Israel, when they heard the pronouncement of the Lord to turn and head into the wilderness, all of a sudden, they changed their minds. If that's what you want, Israel, here, take it and go. And now, seeing the consequences, Israel takes a step back and says, wait, 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 wait. No, no, we we change our mind. Actually, we're going to go up and we will take the, the land of promise. We've sinned against the Lord. We ourselves will go up and fight as the Lord, our God, has commanded us. And so they fasten their weapons. They think it easy to go up into the hill country. And the Lord said to them, do not go up and fight. I am not in your midst. You will be defeated before your enemies. But still they presumptuously went up. And without the Lord on their side, they were defeated soundly. The defeat was so sound, actually, that in verse 45, they returned and wept before the Lord. That word means they wept and they wept. And they wept, and they wept over their losses, over the consequences of their disobedience, over the forfeiting of the blessings and the inheritance that had been promised to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that they were not going to be the generation that attained those promises. It was too late for them. We see it in verse 45 again. Even in their weeping, the Lord did not listen to their voice or give ear to them. The Lord did not change his mind about their situation, nor did he listen to their weeping at all. 
See, the Lord does not listen to or pay attention to the prayers of stiff-necked sinners. But He does listen to the prayers of those who love Him. And it's for this reason that the people of Israel, in verse 46, remained at Kadesh many days, the days that they remained there. It is for this reason that Israel must wander in the wilderness for as long as they would, instead of entering into the promised land. There's much to learn in our text this morning about, A, the consequences of faithlessness, the forfeiting of an eternally good and joy-filled eternity, and receiving instead the curse of eternal wrath, where weeping and tears will not be listened to by the Lord as He perfectly dispenses His justice against all the rebels who deserve that justice. We also learn the blessings of faithfulness, that those who, like Caleb and Joshua, who trust and serve the Lord, will be given the most spectacular of inheritances, eternal life with Jesus Christ. So the choice, in closing, is left to you. You've heard the options. You've heard the biblical witness Which one will characterize your life? Will you be a faithless one who dies in the wilderness? Or would you be a faithful disciple and enter into the everlasting Canaan by grace through faith in Jesus? Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that while the subject might be uncomfortable, this is who you are perfectly holy, perfectly just, perfectly righteous. Lord, I thank you that your word consistently reminds us that of all of your perfections and all of your attributes and all of who you are, it gives us a wonderfully well-rounded picture of your characteristics. So, Father, I thank you. I pray that as followers of Jesus, we would always remember and announce with urgency this reality that unsaved, the unsaved find themselves under. The wrath of God is upon them. And then lead into the good news that they can access the blessings of eternal life and forgiveness of sin by turning to Jesus in faith. And for all of us who have been saved from the wrath of God by the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that we would just be jumping up and down in our hearts right now, thanking you for such an undeserved blessing. We praise you, we honor you, and we thank you in the name of Christ. Amen.